attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I'm your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for Boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. Today's guest on the podcast, David Salzman. For those of you who tuned in earlier this week, you heard his dad, Marty Salzman, telling his stories. Now we've got Dr. David Salzman right here on the show. We had a great time. Uh, I was actually sick as a dog when we recorded this. Uh, Dr. Salzman was up at camp for just a short time this past summer, and uh, I was very ill, but we had to get it in. So uh, hopefully you won't be able to tell. Uh, He is vibrant and charismatic, so you don't even need to hear most of me in the thing. So hopefully you won't even be able to tell. But we had a great time together. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy listening to the stories. Before we get to that, let's talk about a couple things. First of all, Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah to you. Whichever, hope both, whatever it is, they're both coming up and they're both going to be here before we do another episode. So I hope you enjoy your holidays. I hope they're fantastic. If you need a last minute gift idea, have I got one for you? Consider a Camp Ojibwe History Project commemorative brick. That's right. Great last minute chance to put a loved one's name or your own name. I mean, look. I buy myself more gifts than I buy anyone else, let's be honest. Right there, on the grounds of Camp Ojibwa, forever, under the Collegiate Week bench. If you want to check it out, just head over to campojibwahistory.org and click right there on the button that says, I'd like to buy a commemorative brick. Also, I know you've heard about it. I know you've read about it. But I'm going to tell you again, May 6th, 2017, the Camp Ojibwa... 90th summer celebration is, uh, it's going to be something. Plans are ramping up. Meetings are being had. It's really, you're not going to want to miss it. We're going to have ticket sales available in about, I'm going to guess about a month. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, it's going to be awesome. And you're not going to want to miss out. If there's anyone you can think of that doesn't know about it, make sure you tell them. We got it on the Facebook. Uh, we have it on, on all of our websites. So come by, check it out, send them to oj90.com, OJ90, and they can find out all the details, they can get registered, and when the time comes, they can even buy their tickets there. Okay, that's it. Let's get going with this holiday edition. Here we go. David Salzman on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. There was Christmas Eve, babe, and the drunk tank, and all man said to me. Won't say another one And then he sang a song The rare old mountain tune I turned my face away And dreamed about you First and foremost, please say your name and years at camp I feel like this is something for a jail sentence or something. <laughs> uh, my name is David Salzman. 
Um, I've been at camp since 1989. I was a camper from 89 through 95, a counselor from 96 through 2002. Uh, last three years, I was a waterfront director. And I've been coming up to camp every summer since, except for one summer uh, as the camp doctor. And yet doesn't look a day over 25. How does he do it, ladies? Uh, do you want to talk about why you didn't come up that summer? It was brutal. Yeah, I mean, it's probably a good place to start. So <laughs> the one summer before that I was supposed to come up here, uh, 2012, uh, the week beforehand, I was racing in a triathlon, made a corner. There was a car, decided the car needed the road more than I did and drove right into me. Uh, and so it was a little difficult to get up here a week later. Uh, But I've been coming up ever since. Yeah, I like the casual email I got. Hey, so probably not going to make it to camp. (laughs) Kind of like crashed into a car doing 100 miles an hour on a bike. Mm, I'm probably fine. Yeah, but the best part of it, though, was everybody was trying to figure out a way to get me up here. So Susan Humrick, I used to come up the sixth week of camp as the camp doctor. And Susan and Rod Humrick would come up uh, that week. And Susan was like... "Um, I'll drive you up. You can sit in the back of the car. We'll make sure everything works. No problem. I was like, uh, thanks for the offer, but I can barely move right now. So coming up to camp is probably not the best place to be. Totally. But it certainly speaks to your love of camp that it took that to keep you out. Yeah, it's the only summer that I've missed and uh, the only summer that I plan on missing. Very nice. So let's go back to the very beginning. Yeah. Uh, how old are you when you, your first year? So my first summer was 1989. So did you get a, a camp call? So we got a camp call and, uh, back then, uh, Danny would come on the camp calls and he, I remember him coming into my house and he brought the slide deck and it was this set of 35 millimeter slides and a deck that would spin around. Uh, and he brought the projector and everything else so we could look at it. And I don't remember all of it. I mean, I saw parts of camp and it looked great and exciting and seemed like it was going to be a lot of fun. And apparently years later, when I was talking to my parents about this, my dad went to camp for years. Sure. And uh, so the story goes that uh, apparently the camp call was not for me, but it was to convince my mom Mm. that sending me to camp would be an okay thing to do. Um, (laughs) And then I came up to camp and haven't... uh, you know, I, I knew it was going to be sports camp. I knew it was going to be all this instruction and waterfront, and it was going to be a lot of fun. But I don't think I really knew what camp was until sure. I got here. Now, do you feel? Do you think that was because um, she knew about his experience with camp, and that had kind of turned her off a little bit, or just like worried about you? Yeah, no, I think it was more uh, the uh, the personality of camp. I guess from mm. the stories that she had heard mm. had always been a very competitive sports, you know, win at all costs sort of a thing. And I had no idea about any of that. Sure. Uh, It was just stories from dad. And I think she was worried, was it going to be too competitive or too, too much of something that no one really knew about? Um, And I think most parents have a concern, right? You're going to send your kid off. And back then there were two options your first year. So you came up for all eight weeks or you went up for the first four weeks and then went home. And coming up the second four wasn't an option. And so at the very beginning, there was a decision, if you're going to go, we're going to go all in and go all eight weeks and experience all that camp had to offer. Um, and so I think there was a, a time and is this going to be the right place at the right time for the, for me? And 
it worked out great, but I think there was that initial uncertainty. Sure, absolutely. Were you already sort of sports inclined? Did you like sports or? Yeah, I mean, I think I played. Kid, so. I was a kid. I played sports, and um, I mean, back then I was talking to another one of the camp doctors who's up here now, and this notion of free play, and mm. uh, all the time we'd go a couple friends, and we'd go hang out at the at school afterwards, and just play pickup basketball or tennis or whatever it was, um, but free play. And so I was like, well, I can do that. I, I can swim. We had a sailboat at the time. There's enough things up here. It'll be great. Yeah, for sure. So you got here that first year. Uh, what's the very first thing you remember about coming to camp? Oh, let me preface that question first. Had you ever come to post camp? No, I'd never been up thing? here I thought before. maybe because yeah. your dad had been here. So. No, I'd never, uh, I'd never <laughs> been up to camp uh, ever. So we... Uh, we get on the buses, and back then the buses left from Kmart in Highland Park, which doesn't even exist anymore. It's where the Target is now. Ah. Um, so that's where the buses left from. Uh, so we got on the buses and drove all the way up here for what seemed like it was an eternity. <laughs> uh, I remember Denny in those days would drive the Suburban, and uh, the back of the Suburban was filled with uh water or soda or who knows what it was but we'd stop at a rest stop halfway up the way and get out of the bus eat lunch oh uh, nice. get okay. back in the bus and drive on the rest of the way up here so i finally remember getting up to camp and it's a beautiful sunny day like it always is at camp ojibwa because it never rains up here ever that's true it never rains and uh we get off the bus and i remember getting off the bus and them telling me because we had no idea what cabins we were going to be in until we actually got off the bus sure and they said cabin three. It was the first cabin I was in. And I looked across the campus and I was watching everybody run to the cabins. And I thought, oh, my God, that cabin is so far away. I mean, it's it's <laughs> all the way across the campus. How in the world? I have a backpack. How am I going to run? Wait, I'm just going to follow the person in front of me, right? So I remember I saw it was, you know, the light. It was 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Whenever we got here, the sun was shining on the cabins as it always does as it goes across the lake the cabins were bright white we run across the cabin and back then there were i don't know maybe 10 or 12 kids in a cabin sure and so because you're still uh, single beds it right? was single beds no bunk beds uh and so i still remember about where i was in the cabin it was probably three or four beds on the right side um and we had to figure everything out unpack uh get the cabin ready i think we had three counselors maybe that year um, and then we did the routine welcome to camp on Monday afternoon. So unpack a little bit, and then they started to call every cabin over to the infirmary. Sure. Um, and I, you know, they they do, and we still do, all of the weight checks when people arrive. Mm -hmm. So I stand up on the scale, and I look up. Here I am is maybe 10 years old, I guess. And I look up at this camp doctor who seems like he's 100 feet tall at the time. Sure. And And I say... As I've been reminded every year when I come up to camp, are you Dr. Sachs? And he looked at me and said, yes. He said, my dad, Martin Salzman, says hello. Right, so formal and very, <laughs> like, I'm a fight, you know, I'm a kid. I've never been on this long trip before. Sure. And, well, here's someone I think I might know. Um, and so we do that and we did the swim test. Um, and back then the swim test for everybody was three lengths of the of the swimming area. So okay. we got in, we swam down, we swam back, and we swam down towards the other end. And then I think we had to tread water for two minutes or something. 
And the only thing I remember was that the water seemed really cold. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but apart from that, it was just another day swimming. And, and then camp started. Uh, we had dinner. No idea what we ate. It was probably spaghetti. I was going to say, you know what you ate. I mean, it was probably spaghetti. The first meal of camp has been the same for roughly 89 years. And uh, sit-down meal. And then camp started. And we started playing leagues. And we did this thing way back when. I think it was called Pick Four, maybe. Um, where instead of leagues all day long, we would do instruction in the morning for the first couple weeks of camp. Um, and we did what I, I still remember the first year because I remember sitting there before camp trying to decide what do I want to pick mm. so that I could learn, you know, what instruction do I want to do to get better. So I, one of them I picked was basketball because I was horrific at basketball. And then over the seven years I was a camper, that never got any better, <laughs> despite the fact that I think I was on one of the watermelon or the A-League, Varsity League, whatever it was called at the time because it changed so many times right. over the years. Uh, I'm pretty sure my team won the the majors or the A-League mm. basketball. Okay. Uh, which, Not probably, shabby. which probably meant that I spent half of the game sitting on the bench, but <laughs> it's, we still won, right? Um, and, and one of them was sailing. I know I definitely did that at the very beginning. Uh, and uh, tennis maybe, but I couldn't mm. tell you what they all were. So, so you were able to, you picked your own, so you didn't go like cabin two didn't all go. Yeah, sail. exactly. It was just so, whoever picked sailing went and sailed. So first thing in the morning, so from, you know, nine 30 till 10 30 or nine 30 to 11 30 sailing may have been a double. Mm. So you pick so three. Exactly. So you'd have time to go out. And then all morning it would be instruction and we would do those sorts of things. So I spent, I think a week or maybe two weeks, the first two weeks of camp. Uh, doing instruction in the morning and learning how to sail and learning how to do these different elements uh, a little bit better. And then afternoon and evening, we would ha- we would still have the same league play and there'd still be rec period. Although I think initially rec period was, it might have been in the morning before lunch and then there might have been mm. an activity. I mean, things have changed so many times over sure. the years. The idea was the same. Camp was camp and there were still the leagues and there was rec period, but we had this other element of instruction to really learn a lot more about what was going on. Nice. Now, just as a trivial point, um, at the time when you were taking sailing, was current director of sailing Karen Sachs in charge of the program? So um, I don't remember who was in charge of the program. I will tell you with certainty, though, um, that I remember some of those first days going out sailing, and it was in Karen's boat. Ah, Karen's um, Delight. No, not Karen's Delight. Oh, that's so a So Karen's one. Delight came out. There was a boat that was about the size of Karen's Delight called the Javelin. Um, and some of the older waterfront directors or people who were here may remember it. it was this big, heavy blue boat. Um, and we would try and sail it every now and then. It wasn't that easy to sail. I don't think Karen's delight, I think might have been, I think it was an anniversary present that George gave ah. to Karen sometime around their 25th anniversary, I think. Gotcha. Um, and back then, they were coming up to camp for the first two weeks of camp, and then they would sail it the first two weeks, and then we'd go out uh, and sail it later in nice. the summer. After they were gone. After they were gone. Um, <laughs> Which was probably fine with them. Yeah, it was a, it was a great uh, it was a great boat. It was good to, it was good to sail. Nice. Yeah, no, it was, it was great. So a hilarious story about Karen's Delight. So that boat showed up. It wasn't the first boat. We sailed in Sunfishes. So later on, I don't know, maybe I was in 13, 14. Uh, later on when I was a camper, 
we took out Karen's Delight, and it was myself and the sailing director at the time. Pretty sure his name was Dana Fisher, maybe, but I could be totally wrong and butchering his name. So we're out sailing. It's a beautifully gusty day, first or second year that they've had the sailboat. Oh, boy. Um, and we're out in the middle, sort of on the left side of Catfish Lake as you're looking from camp, sort of that big opening over there. And a gust hits us, and it's just the two of us in the boat. Neither of us were really that big, and we didn't have the weight to keep the boat horizontal. <laughs> and so it, it went horizontal, but just in a different direction where the mast was entirely horizontal, and we yeah. capsized the boat. And then the boat kept going over. Now, that boat is a lot bigger than the Sunfish, and Catfish Lake, for people who've been out there, it's not that deep. Right, so you can walk from camp to the first island. If you can follow the sandbars, you can walk out there. We were well past that, but we capsized the boat, and the tip of the mast got stuck in the bottom of the lake. Oh, wow. And so the two of us are up on the boat trying and trying. Like, we, ha- this is a brand new boat. <laughs> what in the world is going to happen if we right. can't get this thing back to shore? So we finally, we roll it over, we get the boat back up, and we go sailing, and we look at the very top of the mast and we can see the silt from the bottom <laughs> of the lake that's just sitting out there kind of just dripping down a little bit. And the two of us look at each other, knowing that we hadn't broken anything. The boat still works great and it works great to this day. Sure. And then decided we'd probably had enough and turned back in and came <laughs> sailing. In. That was probably a good choice at that point. Yeah. Very nice. So early on, it seems like you had a pretty good time at camp. Uh, obviously, that's probably why you wanted to come back. And uh, the love for camp began. Do you remember uh, one of those moments, sort of first couple of years, that really like sealed the deal? Though, were there maybe a certain counselor or something like that, or a certain friendship that really kind of like clicked in everything for you? Uh, you know, it was there. I think there were a lot of different things that occurred over the years. Um, one of the probably my closest friendships that has persisted to this day. Um, in 1990, there were two twins that came from a small city in California called San Diego. Sure. Um, that I don't, you know, California is really far away, away from Chicago. <laughs> um, and they were a year older and, uh, the Copans brothers, uh, Andrew and Michael, uh, we became good friends and throughout over the course of the years became great friends. Uh, I ended up being coming fraternity brothers at Cornell with Michael Nice. Uh, or Mike. I mean, we were in the same house. We've stayed in touch and uh, get to go visit them every now and then. Uh, so that's been really, really neat to, you know, to build that friendship, but not just to have a Chicago friendship, but to have friendships um, from all over. Um, but camp was good. I mean, we, the cabins were always fun. Um, we, it was pretty much the same group of kids as we worked through mm. all the way up until we got to cabin 13. And then all of a sudden, there were two cabins that merged together, and now there were these people I'd never really been in cabins with, um, and so there were new friends. Now, is cabin 14 around for you, or do you predate yeah, No, cabin 14. Um, I was there for cabin 14. You're one of the first groups. Yeah, I think there might have been three, two or three, maybe okay. four, I not think, too uh, many years Adam before. Adam Bohm, I think, is first group, so if that gives you a year yeah. relation um, to you. Adam Bohm was a couple years older. He was one of the counselors uh, for sure. Uh, so we were there. We didn't fill the whole cabin up for sure. There were no, um, there were bunks. We had four in a cube, um, mm-hmm. but we didn't fill all the cubes in the main room there in the, in the, uh, in the cabin. Gotcha. Uh, but I think the other people too, I mean, obviously there were my cabin mates, uh, but I think the other people 
who really had a, a strong positive impact to come back year after year after year. There was a small subset of counselors who, um, I mean, let's be honest, right? Everybody who's listening to this podcast right now, like I was never the best athlete. Um, I was never, you know, I was, I was one of those more awkward kids, I guess, probably. But I think everybody who can't, comes to camp is awkward in their own way. Certainly. Um, Certainly. And there's something about everybody's awkwardness that fits together and creates this really great environment. And it's not awkward in a negative way or in a weird, right. uh, strange way. It's just we are all a little bit different. And that, I think, is one of the things that makes camp so profound and great that despite everybody's differences and despite the fact that not everybody is going to be the one one and not everyone's the best athlete that we all find a home yeah. in different parts here. Yeah. I think that I, you hit on something so beautiful there. It's true. And profound is the right word because it's not only do you find a way to fit in, but we all find a way to accept that from each other. Yeah. That we don't just get comfortable ourselves, but we find a way to be comfortable with everybody else. And it's just, Oh yeah, that's just what we do. Right. It's fine. You don't even think twice about it. So here I am, I don't know, whatever it was called, pineapple, maybe mm-hmm. who knows. And, um, I, for some reason, and I don't remember exactly what started it, but we're playing softball and the coach decides, let's put Salzman at third base. And I'm thinking like, okay, like I can catch a ball. I can stop a ball, but isn't third pl- third base, like, isn't that where the best <laughs> athlete usually plays? Sort of I an mean, important spot on the field. Maybe that or maybe shortstop, sure. one of the two. Usually one of those two, yeah. Um, and you figure the majority of kids who come to camp are right-handed. The majority of the balls are going to be hit right up the third base line. So let's just put Salzman there. And uh, it was Darren Annixter. I still remembered it. And he's sitting there, and it's incredibly positive. Like, he starts yelling at the top of the lung, you are the most underrated third baseman in all of camp, right? And it just starts building and building. And then all of a sudden, it becomes, nothing's getting by me. And then nothing got by me. And I had no fear. And it didn't matter. Like, I was a wall at third base. Um, But I think I really strived at camp, or I found my niche in sports. Like I said, I was never the best basketball player. Um, But I was talking to Cappy, who's up here now, Um, and I, we sort of came up with the best way to describe it. I was just small, scrappy and quick. So, I mean, I would hit the ball down the third baseline and then I could beat out the ball every time throw to first, I would just hustle down to first. And then once I was on first, right, we know the way the play works. You hit to third base again and you start at first and you run all the way to third and you beat the play to third or you force an error. Um, and that works really well. And then in hockey, I played defense, um, and I could just get to the puck quickly and, you know, I wasn't as coordinated enough to play offense and to figure out how are you going to, I don't know, do all those magical stick things that people did <laughs> and put the puck sure. in the back of the net all the time. But I understood the game and I could predict kind of where people were going and I could be in the right place at the right time or football, again, catch and move quickly. Um, although true story was slap shots, right? Maybe I played defense, but there was one year, I don't know, I was probably, I was in cabin 13, so it would have been 94, um, the year I, one of the two times I won collegiate week, um, <laughs> just to throw that in there in case At, anyone uh, was worried. 20 minutes into the show, we yeah. have is that first a new, mention of Is that a new record or no? <laughs> so 92, 94. Um, so it's 94, uh, because I remember the person who I beat, who was the 110 that year, um, and it's slap shots. And the team event was coming down to the two of us. 
um, and I won. And that to me was just, I mean, that's what makes Collegiate Week so great is it doesn't matter, and it didn't matter, and it still doesn't matter what round you went and whether you were a second or a third rounder. I was probably a third rounder that year going against the one whatever. Sure. I was the oldest person on the team that year. Um, and so it wasn't captain versus captain. It was oldest person versus oldest as it still is. And it was it was a duel, essentially. And uh, and we won. And that was the way the whole... You know, you mentioned earlier this notion of teams and groups of people just gelling together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was one of those years where on paper... Uh, it was uh, the oldest person on our team was me, and I was in cabin 13. So we had no one that year from the oldest cabin wow. in camp. And our first rounder was in 11 or 12, I think. That is not usually a recipe for success. <laughs> usually not, right? Like, there's usually pretty predictable, and yeah. I was never a head coach during collegiate week, but the two years I was an assistant coach, the usual role is when given an option, the older, better athlete is always the best choice. Yes. Um, so I was probably neither the better nor the older athlete, um, and we won that team event. We won the week that year too. Uh, it was great. It was fun. Nice. What team was that? So 92 was Illinois okay. and 94 was Chicago. Very nice. The other part about collegiate week is while it is so sport heavy, no doubt, right? There's activities and team events. There are all those other things too that make or break the week. So you have track and swim Sure. And song night and stunt night, which you were going to get to in the obstacle course. And, you know, I think all the people with um, all these other talents that aren't the one one, right, that aren't the best athletes that like myself can't dribble a basketball to save his life. Right. All of a sudden during collegiate week, there's some great and really important value that many people overlook. Mm-hmm. So those two years in 92 and 94, we won track from my recollection. And of course, 92, 94, this is a really long time ago. And I'm sure you can talk to anyone who has won Collegiate Week and they're going to say the exact same thing I'm about to. Sure. So to the best of my recollection, I'm pretty sure we won track, swim, obstacle. And then if we didn't win, we placed really high in both song and stunt night because we had both of them back then. Um, and you can't, you can't win the week without placing highly in all of those different that's, things. That's true. So the swim meet, depending on the year... There were a couple of us that would just go back and forth between first and second, depending on the age groups and who was in the age group and who wasn't in the age group. Sure. Um, who was your primary swim nemesis? So in my cabin, uh, his name was Ben Singer. Um, and the two of us would go back and forth. Um, sometimes it was Eric Annixter when he was in the age group mm-hmm. with us, uh, depending. Now, are you old enough older enough than TJ that you would never leave in swimming? Against yeah, I don't think the two of us ever swam. Yeah. Uh, we were never <laughs> in the same age group to swim together. Um, and then by the time that I was in 14, I was swimming in high school. So I was getting a little bit more. I could swim those other strokes, too, that a lot of people struggled with. Sure. Because uh, butterfly was for the, the, the masters or the seniors or whatever we were called back then. Right. Um, and honestly, you can get third place in the butterfly just by doing the stroke the yeah, whole time. Yeah, by showing no matter, up and not right? doing it incorrectly and DQing yourself, <laughs> exactly. you'll place. And uh, I'd, I'd like to think I did a little better than that. But, <laughs> I mean, even scrappy little me, I think I placed once or twice in the shot put, mm. which makes no sense whatsoever. Sure. I could never win it. Um, and I'd pick up some points in the 50-yard dash. So there are all sorts of random things. But, you know, you put a team together, people who can pick up random little points here and there. Um, and then you get all sorts of points. So yeah, collegiate week, another huge part of that is the stage. So you've got, um, song night, you've got stunt night, 
Uh, and I think probably one of my values, right, if it wasn't going to be for the basketball court, was for all these other things. And then the ability to do stuff on the stage. So in the Jubilee, I was um, I was in the chorus. There was a couple of years, I think I was in the special eight. Sure. Um, a, lo- a now forgotten but important part of the Camp Ojibwe Jubilee Chorus for probably 20 years. Yeah, it was there, was there for a while. And then uh, I think... When I was a JC, because back then it was only counselors, but the um, the handertine, the with the black light mm-hmm. and the outfits, um, that was something that was we had to try out for it and figure out can you learn the moves that you have to do and then do it in the dark. Uh, that was impressive, and that to me felt like I was a part of a true like OJ history. Sure. Um, and to be, I, mean, up I would there, imagine your dad was also. In I'm man. pretty sure my dad yeah. was um, in the hand routine. I and think I'm, we're going to play this after his interview. We're going to, your two interviews are going to play pretty close together. Yeah. And I think the audience will have just heard him say that he spent several years being in the Ant-Man. So, right. Um, so I remember that part of it and uh, you know, and it was cool that the, the counselors who I'd looked up to as a camper um, who I now got to share the stage with to do this part of the Parents Weekend show. Now that I wasn't a camper, it was it was neat. It was a it was a cool part to be able to be an element of that history. Uh, and then we did the uh, the sixth week show way back when. Yes. Yeah, so actually, inform us a little bit about what that was because that is something that hasn't really been talked about. Yeah. I knew it existed, yeah. but tell me about what it was, why it happened, yada. So remember, you got to go back to uh, this this idea that I was talking about at the very beginning where um, camp was an eight-week option, essentially. So you either came up for all eight weeks or your first year you were given the option to go home after four. And so, you know, eight weeks we would do the first six weeks essentially were league games or maybe it was the first five weeks were league games and then we started to do playoffs afterwards the playoffs were the sixth week and once upon a time collegiate week I think was the sixth week of camp and then the playoffs followed collegiate week but to the best of my recollection collegiate week was always the very last thing of camp and so you're up here for eight weeks It, it wasn't two four week leagues that were going on and we did, uh, we did a show, the six-week of camp. And it was, um, I mean, there were such examples as um, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat was one of the shows that we did. Okay. Um, which, so I've seen some videos, then, yeah. and that makes sense that those are what those shows are from. Yeah, that's exactly what it's from. It was the six-week gotcha. of camp. And I think there were a lot of people who were in the chorus, who in the Jubilee Chorus, who participated in it. And I think it was just another avenue for... Um, kids who are up here for the whole summer to find their niche at camp, to find something where they really felt like they fit in and would have a great time. The infamous uh, David Rosen, Darren Annixter kiss on stage. I, that must have been also a six-week show, then a Robin Hood six-week show, I'm perhaps? pretty sure that was exactly what that, that was That makes from. sense. Now, who would uh, put this together? Who would direct it and that sort of stuff? So it was produced, if you will, um, directed <laughs> by Elliot. Ah. So Elliot did the direction and he organized everything. And then the musical accompaniments, the piano, was played by um, Paul James. So Paul was, uh, he was incredible, right? And he, and the two of them, Paul played the music for the Jubilee. He played the music for Song Night and Stunt Night. 
Um, and so not only was he a very talented and gifted musician, but he could sight read or just play and make things go along, which became really important in stunt night yeah. as the years went on. And so Paul would play the music and we'd learn and uh, we'd go back to our cabins that night, those people who were in the shows, and we'd learn and we'd try and figure out everything that was going on. Um, so I definitely remember Joseph was one of the one of the shows that we did. And then um, the only other show, I remember the, the one that you mentioned, mm -hmm. the, the Rose and Annixter moment. Um, the only other show that I can remember being in um, was Little Abner. Oh. So Little Abner was awful. An American classic, though. Um, I couldn't tell you a thing <laughs> about the show. It was awful. Every, okay. every component of the show was bad. Sure. Um, and Little Abner will always have a very special place in my heart and in my mind and memory um, because, for like I said, I don't remember anything about the show, but all I know is that I was wearing a straw hat. was part of my costume. Okay. And as the show is over and everyone's leaving the rec hall and walking out, um, I take the straw hat off my head and I put it on Paul James' head. And I said, see you later. And that night, uh, Paul James had a heart attack and died. Mm. Um, and Paul James and I that year, we had breakfast every morning. He wasn't my counselor, but we'd sit in the same place every day. And I walked to breakfast that day with, like, Paul wasn't there. Um, mm. It was weird. It was different. And so, you know, talked to Elliot and talked to everyone about it for a little. And Elliot and his classic, um, totally inappropriate humor, <laughs> you know, basically said, well, little Abner drove Paul to his death. Um, like I said, it was a pretty awful. Sure. Um, it was an awful show. Um, but, you know, Paul had a really important, I think, role at the camp. And he and Elliot, I think, you know, definitely elevated and continued on that tradition of the stage yeah. and giving people an opportunity to be involved in the stage and involved um, with a different part of camp um, that was really important. Yeah, there were, I mean, Paul had some predecessors here with uh, Lou Mager, who was here earlier this yeah. year, and, and Lou Fletcher, and even Dale Fisk, going back a little to that. But there, the stories all go back to Paul and his incredible talents, his ability to, he's the perfect piece of a puzzle at a summer camp like this, where you need a guy who literally can just be like, oh yeah, I can play that, or I'll just make that up, let's go, right. and can just do it, and there's no need to get him 25 books to tell him what it is or for him to take five hours to rehearse it. He just goes. And it became so important, and it was a, a thing that was missing um, after he left. It was, you know, during stunt night, what a lot of people would try and do is to create musicals. Mm. So, you know, the, the people who won stunt night, it wasn't just putting on a stunt but it was elevating it to the next level. And yeah. so we started, or the counselors, the coaches started to write musical numbers. And they started to really try and get creative with what was happening. And so that led and continued to my uh, 95 stunt. So the 95 stunt... I think is hilarious, <laughs> but that's just because I was in it, right? So before I tell you about the stunt, I got to go back a couple weeks during the summer. Okay. So back then it was sit down meals for every meal except for Sunday brunch. And I think back then we were doing Sunday night buffet also. 
And then obviously there was Tuesday night for trip day and Thursday night cookouts, but every other meal was sit down. And maybe we had gone to breakfast buffet by then too. Mm. Um, I think we might've gone to breakfast buffet probably. So at the end of every meal, there were the cheers that I'm sure everyone on the podcast has heard about and birthdays and, you know, meals would go on forever. And then that horn, that obnoxious sure. car horn or whatever it was would go off and everyone would get silent for a moment or two and then it would resume right back up again. <laughs> so at the end of lunch, there was always an opportunity for announcements. So here we are in, I don't know, the fifth week of camp, maybe it was the third week of camp, who knows? And the person who was running all the announcements, you know, making packages, here are the people who got packages, this, that, and the other, said, anyone else have any other announcements? So one of my uh, co-campers in my cabin stood up, totally deadpan. So you got to imagine, right, for the people out there listening, imagine the mess hall. And it's quiet. And in the back of the mess hall where the round tables are, where 13 used to sit and where 14 sat, mm -hmm. really tall guy stands up and says, so I'm missing a sock, a white wigwam sock. If anyone has seen my sock, can you please let me know? And sits down. And there's this moment in the mess hall of, what in the world just happened? Followed immediately by the place loses it. I mean, everyone's cracking up and laughing. And the person who's running announcements, they have no idea what's going on right sure. now. Is it serious? Is it a joke? It's hilarious. So that happened. I'm not ever sure he really found his sock. Okay. So now it comes time to write the stunt for the 95 collegiate week team that I was on, Northwestern. And the coaches decide that the theme of the stunt is going to be um, body part land. So everyone on our team, right, had, like, there was someone who had big ears. Okay. There was someone who had a big nose. And so this person had a massive, like, Jay Leno-type chin. Not massive, but Jay Leno-style chin. Big chin. And so my, he gets up there and this whole thing about the wigwam socks comes back and I'm the narrator <laughs> under the black lights and I've got these two white wigwam socks on my hands and we're singing this song of like, from, it's actually from Joseph, right? Like lifting the lyrics of like, instead of bring me his technicolor coat, it's bring me the wigwam socks and trying to find the wigwam socks and tying it all together to this silly, otherwise completely asinine event that happened in the middle of the mess hall. Nice. Uh, and the crowd lost it. It was great. But I mean, it was that notion of being able to take little things from camp and exploit them into a hilarious story to tell something other than just another, you know, we're all going to war today or we're going to do this and right. let's... You know, let's it's my first day at college. Oh, man, I, I want to be on the basketball team. Right. right. And it was something a little bit different, which was good. That's fantastic. So we've talked a little bit about we've talked a lot about your camper years. Let's move on a little bit to counselor years. How uh, how does that switch feel for you? Um, what's it like being a junior counselor and then being a senior counselor? Uh, so, it was, I mean, I think when I started, um, I definitely was enjoying the waterfront as a senior camper. No doubt about it. 
And then when I started as a JC, I was definitely leaning more towards let's spend some time at the waterfront. So I'd spend time at the waterfront. I would help teach this, that, or the other. No real leadership roles, but I was a lifeguard. I knew how to do I mean, I, I had a value down at the waterfront. Um, and I was definitely involved and engaged. And the first couple of years, definitely as a JC, um, I remember coaching because uh, one of the teams that I coached might have been a floor hockey team, I think. Uh, we won one of the championships. Um, and then over time, the amount of coaching that I was doing decreased, the amount that I was spending at the waterfront decreased or increased. Mm. Um, of the seven years that I was a counselor, I was in a cabin for four of them, and then in the waterfront shack for the last three years. Right. Um, and so it was really, it was neat, I think, to have, um, to have a cabin and to be a cabin counselor. Uh, and even to this day, I'll run into... Uh, I'll run into people at the event for Denny a year ago. Mm. Uh, there were some of the campers who came up to me. I was going to say, me. are there any of those campers that you had that really... Yeah, I mean, there were some of the campers, and they came up to me, and he said, hey, Salzman, you remember when? I was like, of course I remember that. How in the world could I ever forget you running out of the cabin every day during cleanup and then grabbing onto my leg, and I would literally drag you across campus until we got <laughs> back to the cabin, and then you would clean up again. Um and I think that there's, there's such a, a fan, I mean, the same relationship that I had with many of the counselors in terms of mentorship and, you know, having people to look up to when I was a camper, a lot of those same things I wanted to try and emulate, um, at the same time when I was a counselor. Sure. Um, and so to walk that, that line between being a big brother and a friend, but also recognizing that I was a counselor, um, and to have some element of, um, uh, d- provide direction to the mm. cabin as well at the same time. Nice. Um, and it was, it was great. I mean, I, I remember the co-counselors and then as a counselor, you get to hang out with your co-counselors at night. Well, sure. I was going to say that's the, the extra piece comes into play. And yeah. That's the, the extracurriculars, the bonding time outside of camp as it were. Um, and there's, you know, the two brothers that I mentioned earlier, the Copans brothers, when I was going into my senior year in high school, I still remember a conversation that we had in the Subway restaurant in downtown Eagle River, because back then there weren't too many options right. like fast food. Um, and we were comparing lists of all the different places where we were going to apply for college. Mm. And the only place on my list that didn't match exactly with theirs was Cornell. Mm. And so on a whim, I was like, hey, I might as well put Cornell on the list. And we talked about it a little bit. Figured, you know, two camp guys, we have a lot in common. They liked it. I might like it. And I went out to visit in the fall, fell in love with the place, and then went to the same school. Nice. Um, and that was a neat, you know, again, to be able to bring camp and share that together. Um, so I was an SC, and then I spent a lot of time as, as a counselor. Um, I got to do a lot of officiating. So I would officiate hockey, of all things. Um, you know, I was that scrappy defensive man when I was a camper. The quick guy, get out of the way of the puck. That's, yeah. that's a key talent. That's a key talent, right? <laughs> you got to be able to put your hands up on the boards and yep. jump quickly. <laughs> uh, so I would officiate. And then all throughout collegiate week, even when I was the waterfront director, um, in my more senior years, I got the senior pull. So I got varsity hockey on rink one. Sure. And then field hockey. I would say you got the field hockey pulled. So too. Craig Snower and I, yeah. Craig Snower and I would take all of the field hockey games. Um, and it was always on the campus. And those games, especially towards the end of collegiate week, because the the best games were always saved somehow for last. Who knew how that ever happened? That is Elliot Magic right there. Uh, Elliot Magic. Elliot Magic. Uh, and we we'd take the games, and it was it was great. Um, and then I 
uh, started working at the waterfront, and it started. Um, I was the assistant waterfront director for a while. Who was the waterfront director when you were the assistant? Was it Paul Williams? Uh, so before Paul Williams was Chris Spadanuda. Oh, okay. Uh, so Chris Spadanuda was a great guy. Um, he ran the waterfront, and that's where the original cheer came from. So there was a farmer had a dog, um, and it was Spaddy at the time because that was his nickname that he went by. And then when I took over the waterfront, they changed it to be there was a farmer had a dog, and instead of Spaddy, it became Salsy, uh, which became the thing. Great mess hall um, cheer. It was a great mess hall Absolutely. cheer. Absolutely. And that continued on for a while, even for the first couple of years, I think, when I was coming back as the camp doctor uh, because I still – was coming up for a week at a time, and there were still enough people who knew me as the waterfront director um, that the cheer kept going on. And then, listen, my friend, it is Friday night right now. An hour from now, you could be getting the salsy cheer. I could. <laughs> the question is, if there are enough people to gain that critical mass and the inertia that you need sure. to get a cheer to actually go. That's true. Um, but it is an honor to be a classic cheer, and another honor uh, in the history of camp. Now, uh, doing this, I've learned a lot about the history of camp, as you may guess. Yeah, And uh, the boats over the years have been notable. Um, the early boats that were named after anyone were, of course, the four granddaughters of camp. Right. Um, and I've heard many times them argue about, well, I got the crappy slow boat, I got the speed boat, whatever. Um, of course, Karen had her boat. Uh, Mike Bagan's Donzi was famous for a long time. Paul Keishan's boat across, or not Paul Keishan, but... Um, Jack Keishan's boat across the lake, of course, the most famous early boat. Yeah. Uh, but as far as a camp boat getting named after a guy, I, I think you're it. Yeah. So I think you're the one and only. Uh, I, as far as I know, um, yeah. and in fact, when I was a waterfront director, the boats um, all had nicknames. So we had named the boats, but none of them had been named after humans. Right. So there was the, um, you know, we were really creative back in the day in terms of coming up with boat names. <laughs> sure. So there was the Old Nautique because it was old. Um, I <laughs> love that boat. I think it was a 78 or a 79. Mm. Um, and it was like driving a Harley, basically. And I've never driven a Harley, but I've heard them. Sure. But the roar of the engine, the way the steering worked on that boat. I mean, for anyone out there who's ever driven that boat, it was my favorite boat to drive. And I would come up as Camp Doctor and... You know, like, hey, you want to drive the fancy boat? You want to, no, no, no. I want to get in the old Nautique nice. and feel that thing just roar because that to me was camp. And the old Nautique is the one with the sort of yellowed out letters on the side. Yeah, like, yellowed out yeah. letters, like that tannish. Yeah. The, um, the ugly, the ugly boat, really. It was, I mean, of it, the boats. It was ugly, but I think it also had the most history in it. It was, yeah, it was the old Nautique. Certainly. And then, like I said, the naming convention got really creative. So then there was the 89, because that's the year that it was bought. And then we bucked um, tradition and got what I think the next boat was the 2001. Oh. Not because it was bought in 2001, but there was something about the model or there was something about oh, I it. I see. And then, um, and then there was the new Nautique. Gotcha. So the new Nautique was the first boat in a while. Um, no, sorry, the new Nautique. I take that back. There was the old Nautique, the 89. I don't know. It's been so long. I'm old. I can't remember all these things. Sure. So then there was a new Nautique at some point, which may have ended up becoming this boat that you're mentioning. And um, I'd been waterfront director for three years at that point, and it was my last summer at camp. So it was the fifth weekend at camp, and I guess Denny was appreciative of whatever I'd done over the past couple of years. Um, And we took, when I was probably a JC and starting to work at the waterfront, it was 
not really loved. Um, you could come down. It was kind of laissez-faire. People did what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, but we really tried to bring a lot more structure, but structure in a way that was um, fun and that all the kids could get through the different activities that they were doing and really try and rethink and you know blow up the way we were thinking about it and start over again. And how are we going to teach canoeing and how are we going to teach sailing so that everyone has a chance to get out and go sailing? I mean, I, my first couple of years at camp that the instructional component when done in a fun way was clearly important sure. and it made me a lifelong lover so to speak of the waterfront i mean i come up to camp now and i spend the vast majority of time that i'm here on the waterfront um, i personally think it's the best place in camp but i'm biased <laughs> um, but really trying to we did a lot of things we changed the way that we would do skiing so that more people could go skiing and tubing um, and open water swimming and all that stuff so I go away to a wedding the weekend after parents' weekend. Mm. So I leave camp on Saturday morning. I get on like a 7 o'clock flight out of Rhinelander, and I fly Rhinelander, Milwaukee, Pittsburgh, Ithaca, because the wedding was in Ithaca, New York. (laughs) I get there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, go to the wedding on Saturday night, spend the night in my fraternity house on a uh, couch, get back on a plane at probably about 1 o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday, fly Ithaca, Pittsburgh, Milwaukee, back up to camp, land in Rhinelander at 11 o'clock at night, probably 10.30, get to camp midnight, and um, wake up, and it's Monday morning, so it's time to go, right? You got to work. You got to get things done. And I was walking through the shower house for whatever reason, and uh, one of the toilets was running. So this was back in the day when Martin and oh. um, Lee were the maintenance guys. Classic. And great guys, wonderful guys. But if you're, you know, you remember them, you needed something done, <laughs> it was probably going to get done in a little bit. Sure. And you can use your liberty out there to define Somewhat a little curmudgeonly, bit. I think, is one way they could be defined. Yeah. Somewhat. Martin and I had a really good working relationship, as good as it possibly could be. <laughs> so anyway, so I hear the toilet running. And I'm like, well, this toilet's going to keep running. And then the septic thing is going to overflow. And I'm living in the shack, and that septic thing is right by my shack. This is going to cause problems. Great call. So I go get a wrench, and I fix the toilet. They're really easy to fix. Usually just sand gets stuck in there and I fix the toilet. So I'm finishing fixing the toilet and it's 9.05 maybe. And I hear on the loudspeaker, David Salzman, come to the office. And I knew there was a lineup and I was blowing off the lineup. I'm like, seriously, I got here midnight last night. I got stuff to set up at the waterfront and the toilet's running. (laughs) I got stuff to do. David Salzman, come up to the office. Okay, fine. So... I start walking up the road to get to line, and everyone's at line up, and Danny's like, no, 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 come over here. What in the world could I possibly have done? So, you know, he does this thing about recognizing um, the great strides that the waterfront has undertaken in the past couple of years, and it wasn't just me. I mean, there was a huge team of people that really made the waterfront what it was. Um, we had a ton of um, staff, international staff at the time, sure. who were incredible. I mean, and a people, few who had come back year after year, year after like year. Selwyn and Jimmy in the Bushes, and exactly, Pete and Radke, Selwyn Butler, and Robin <laughs> Joska, and Evan, Evan Hodgkinson. Yep, all those I mean, guys. they were 
incredible. And they were the, and in all honesty, the waterfront never would have become what it did unless that core group of people was here year after year after year and driving the boats and teaching skiing and, and just being involved, um, the way that they were. Um, and it made the waterfront work. So, you know, while, while I like to take, you know, I have a boat named after me, right. But the team of people that were here all those years didn't get a boat named after them. Um, but it never would have happened without the team of people working with it. So I get up there to the front of lineup and Denny has, uh, in an envelope, there were eight letters. Okay. So there's eight letters and they are intentionally mixed up. So I pull them out and there's a Z and there's a T and an H and I'm trying to do like crossword puzzle slash word jumble. What in the world could this be? And I think I might have turned to Denny and I whispered to him and I said, I have no idea what this is. No clue. Right. And then finally he takes the letters and he reorganizes them. And he says, you know, like, you know, in, in great gratitude and because it's your last summer, um, we want you and all the work that everyone has done to be remembered with the boat. And so the new nautique became the Salzy. And, uh, you know, there's few things I, I've never, and I've told many people, right, that you don't keep coming back to camp year after year for, um, it was never for the money. Sure. Because you get paid, but you don't get paid enough. Right. Well, let me rephrase that. You get paid enough, but it, you can make more at home. Right. Um, it was never about a name on anything or an award apart from winning collegiate week twice or maybe a swim meet trophy, you know, but it was never really about the wins. Mm -hmm. Um, it was about camp. And so for me to be, uh, to have an, an, a lasting memory of camp that's there is still pretty neat. Um, and for the first couple of years that I was coming up, People are like, hey, let's go in your boat. Or, nice. um, you know, now it's they hear, like, they know that's the Salzy because TJ, who's the waterfront director now, says, you guys are going to the Salzy or you guys are doing this. And then every now and then a kid will come up, you know, we'll be just talking and someone will refer to me by my last name. And they'll, you sort of see the synapses connect in their mind. Mm. And they're like, you're the guy that the boat is named after? And, it's, you know, just shock. They're amazed. They're like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then they, you know, scurry on with whatever they were doing. Like nothing ever happened. Um, but, you know, that I think is, it's a really neat thing about camp. And I, I'd never expected to have a boat named after me. I'd never asked or wanted really or expected. Sure. Um, you know, it's just one of the, one of the things that Denny has always done a great and tremendous job at as the director is, um, you know, really recognizing and keeping the family together yeah. and keeping the people who are here um, is a part of the family. And whether or not I had a boat named after me, I mean, I would have come back year after year regardless. Sure. Uh, I don't, you know, the fact that I get to see my boat every now and then is kind of neat, but um, <laughs> but it's getting old, right? And, sure. Well, I mean, we all? <laughs> we, we think that boat, so that boat was brand new when I was the waterfront director in 2001, I think. So 15 years, yeah. um, you know, maybe in another 15 years, that'll become the old boat that everyone wants to drive. 
or it'll just go to the scrapyard sure. like many of the other boats do. Well, let me say, uh, so often when I sit down with guys from here, I, um, I don't have any history with them at camp. Yeah. Oftentimes they're many years before me or, you know, or you, and, and the ones we do are great and it's awesome to be able to share a few things, but we did have the joy of sharing a few years together. And let me say publicly to everyone listening that while your humility is impressive and it is a deep part of who you are, that that boat was not given to you because a couple of years at the waterfront were great and it was done by everyone else. That boat was given to you because you represented an institution at camp. You represented the kind of both camper, counselor, and leader that the administration of camp wanted, admired and wanted to honor in any way they possibly could. You, your name carries on because of that. So while underselling yourself is exactly who you are and everything you just said totally exemplifies who Salzy is to the core, just know that that was more than that. And it was to honor those things that you would never admit or you would never take, you know, say, oh, this is me, this is me, because that's not who you are. But I will say it to the people listening, that you were an institution, and that's why you got a boat. So kudos to you, sir. Thanks. And I'll double down yeah. with a story of my own to give you a second to... Okay. <clears throat> my first year at camp. Was this when you were still recording the video on VHS? Oh, wow. This is before I was the video guy. This is when Cody was still doing yeah. the video. Oh, Cody was doing the video, and he was doing it on VHS, right? Yeah, for sure. And you guys were splicing that late, late, late on that last night at camp to try and put it together. Yeah. Oh, I still do that part. I mean, that's just for adrenaline. <laughs> so, oh, it's my first year at camp. I have this car, and um, I have a little problem with it. I don't know it yet, but it, it occasionally will stall out, and I can't get it started. So brilliant me, who's first year at camp, not accepted by anyone. I'm not an Ojibwa guy. I'm the theater guy at the sports camp. I'm not fitting in at all. I don't have a friend at camp yet. I go to town one morning to get a haircut. I decide, brilliant me, I'll just call, set up an appointment, go to town, 7.15, an 85-year-old woman, that's not a joke, cut my hair. 7.30, I'm done. Great. Go out, car won't start. So instead of just calling camp right away, I try to fix it myself, but now it's getting late. Now we're past breakfast, and I'm supposed to be at camp. And mind you, you're still a first-year counselor. Oh. And back then, like, you had to be back. That's Otherwise, a big, deal. big problem. Right. And more so, I don't know anything about camp. As far as I know, I, I don't show up. I'm going home. So I call camp. We'll send someone for you. And it was you who came. And you came in, in the camp van. You picked me up. And it wasn't that you came and picked me up. But in the conversation between town and coming back to camp, you went out of your way to ask me things about myself, to give a shit about me at all as a person at camp, as just a staff guy and not just in any sort of like placating way. You legitimately cared about the conversation. We got back. They were taking an all camp picture. You're like, let's go. Let's make sure we both get in this thing. And that to me was one of those first moments at camp that made me feel like I was at the right place. So I will never be able to thank you enough personally for that moment because I didn't have very many of those moments that first year. My first year was really tough. And yeah, I mean, I you. think, you know, most of the people who are listening to this are all camp people, right? They've been here for years um, but I think one of the things that has always been the hardest for me, and I'm sure a lot of people relate to this, is it's very difficult to, I think, describe the true element of camp, right? Which is what we're talking about. That, yeah, I mean, you, there was this great New York Times article which came out um, March, April or so this year about why kids benefit in such great ways from going to camp. Mm. Um, and you know, I tell my colleagues, yeah, I'm going up to camp for a week. I'm going to be the camp doctor. I'm going to go sailing and probably water ski a little bit and take my bike and go out some bike rides out in the middle of nowhere in the forest. And they kind of look at me with, you're going where for the week? <laughs> you, you spent, 
You spent a week as a camper? Like, what? Right. Are there beaches? Are there open bars? What are you doing? What are you doing, <laughs> right? Are you getting miles for this? <laughs> Nothing, right? So, but I, you know, there's something which is, I don't want to say it's intangible because I think as the years have gone on and I keep coming back, right, you see more and more of it and you, you can put words to all of these intangible things that make camp so special. Um, you know, and again, it's the, uh, it's everyone who's just a little bit awkward. Mm. Even the most normal people are all just a little bit awkward in a good way that figure out a way to get together. And, um, and quite honestly, it's those skills. So learning how as a 20 year old or 21 year old, when I was officially the waterfront director and all the other staff that I was working with were older than me. Mm. And so it was trying to figure out a way without any leadership training or management training, but to work through the process of how are we going to build this waterfront that's going to be incredible. And to this day, the conflict resolution, the leadership skills, um, listening and talking to people, um, I use that stuff more on a daily basis than anything else that I've ever learned. I mean... You know, they often joke, everything you needed to learn, you learned in kindergarten. Sure. So I would argue that everything I needed to learn, probably a lot in med school and residency. I mean, I got to give that some credit. <laughs> but the reality is everything else I learned at the waterfront. Yeah. Um, and, and not many people have that um, opportunity, I think, to really um, excel. And one of the things I remember my dad always told me, um, we were talking, there was one year where I was seriously debating, do I come back to camp or do I get an intern year? Or do I do research in a lab? Or what am I going to do? And he said, um, you know, something along the lines of, you will always have research. Um, And I talked to Doc Nock, too, for a while, because he was in medicine, and I shadowed him and trying to figure out, do I want to be a doctor? Do I not want to be a doctor along the way? So, uh, you know, I talked to both of them about it. And, you know, they both, my dad, too, was very much, the, the lab will always be there, right? You will always be able to research. You'll always be able to do something. But then he also said something which I'll never forget. He said, you know, the other thing about camp is that most people get their first jobs through camp. And I was thinking, really? Like, I want to be a doctor. I got to do, like, med school. I got to get a residency. Right. I'm gonna have to We're thinking, like, 15 years, well, maybe not 12 years down the road. That's a long way to think you're going to get your first job from camp. Sure. Like, no, no, no. I got my first job as a lawyer with, um, a camp person and this person, they got everyone. Like you talk to enough people, there's a lot of camp around that makes those connections with people. So I didn't really believe it. I'm like, whatever, I'm going to go to camp because I love being up at camp and I want to run this waterfront and that's awesome. And I want to be on the waterfront and go barefoot skiing every morning and water skiing and have a blast. Of course you don't barefoot ski anymore. No, I, I, I absolutely do not barefoot ski anymore. Uh, I had an awesome run with barefoot skiing. I got pretty good. It was a lot of fun. And quite honestly, I'm glad those days are behind me because <laughs> I, I fell hard one too many times and it's enough. So I'm sitting at my med school interview. And so it's at Northwestern. Hmm. And back then, and I work at Northwestern now, which is really kind of cool and bizarre at the same place. I've been at Northwestern for a while. And I'm sitting there is our interview. And the interviews were a bizarre structure for a med school interview at the time. But there were three faculty that interviewed three applicants at a time. 
Okay. So they asked... Like the, in an open forum. In a, it was an open discussion. Gotcha. You know, a big group. It was not really a round table. It was a rectangular table, and it was very much like a parole hearing where there were three... You know, the three <laughs> faculty were on one side. Like, think Shawshank Redemption here. Sure. Three faculty on one side, and then the three applicants on the other side. So this was before... Um, when did I interview there? It was my senior year in college. And the year before that, I was up at camp, um, and I was either the... I think I was the assistant waterfront director at the time. So it starts with the guy on the left, and he starts off, and I'm going to shorten this a little bit because otherwise the story is going to get really boring. And he basically tells a story of how he cured cancer. Oh, okay. Sure. Why not? Why not, right? And then the person in the middle tells a story of how they're working in a lab, and they are working to cure HIV. Oh, right. Two both very noble, really important things that to this day we are still working to try and find solutions for. And I'm sitting over here in the corner, and I'm sure I'm starting to sweat, and I feel totally defeated. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to compete with these two people who just cured diseases over the past summer, Right. and I'm here running a waterfront? So I start telling the story, and I'm like, you know, it's going to sound, i got to give you a little preface and tell you a little bit about camp. But essentially what I did was I ran the waterfront and I told him all the things that I did and the responsibilities and working with kids and, you know, the leadership stuff. And about three quarters of the way through it, one of the guys on the other side of the table, he's like, I'm so sorry. Like, this is incredible. I just have to interrupt you. Right. Again, now I'm even ner- more nervous because sure. he's probably like, I've heard enough. This person is going nowhere. Let's just cut our losses and be done. And he's like, so... One of my best friends from growing up works at an overnight camp up in northern Wisconsin. Do you happen to know George Sachs? (laughs) Right? So I'm doing my best not to do what you did, which is just to start laughing. Because now all of a sudden my thought is, haha, you suckers, I just got into med school and you two didn't. And I'm like, of course I know George, right? And I tell him the story of how we've known each other forever and he was best friends with my dad. And the two of them were med school friends and they've known each other forever. Or, you know, the doctor was interviewing me and George were great friends forever. Mm. Um, And sure enough, I get into Northwestern. And so that notion of, um, you know, that first connection. Now, the reality is I probably couldn't have gotten into Northwestern on the interview alone. There were probably some other scores and sure, you grades, some grades and things, were along whatever. the way, right. um, you know, other research experience I had done, but you know, now all of a sudden I'm a human and I can be related to, and that notion of, um, being here. Um, and so, you know, to go back to the very beginning of the podcast, that notion of I've never, I've missed one summer. Mm-hmm. And even that one summer I was broken. I'm like, I'm literally, I was broken, but figuratively I was like, how can I not spend a summer up here? Um, and there were years along the way. I mean, as a camper, sometimes not as much as a counselor, but you know, there are years where I said, maybe I should stay home this summer. Maybe I shouldn't come up to camp. And I'm sure everybody has some of those thoughts as they go through. Um, but you know, I'm up here for a week. I can't really imagine being anywhere else for the week Mm -hmm. in, in the middle of the summer, maybe the sixth week, but right now the fifth week, I love the fifth week because it's enough of camp. I get to do everything. You see the leagues. You see the waterfront. You see all the familiar faces, um, which familiar faces, by the way, is starting to change because sure. effectively my last summer at camp as a counselor um, and as a waterfront director, nearly a full generation of campers 
has come through as campers starting in the younger cabins to become JCs and SCs yeah. who are then leaving. And so there's a lot of faces who no idea who they are, yeah. right? There's faces who I remember, you know, a couple of years after year. Um, there's a couple of kids over the past couple of years when I've uh, helped at the waterfront to teach sailing in much the same way that I learned how to teach sailing, who turns out that those kids are, um, their parents were in cabins that were a couple of years older than me. Sure. Um, you know, <laughs> and it's this sort of symmetry of camp continues and it keeps going on and the faces and the names change. Um, but camp stays the same. And even sometimes I'll be looking, you know, sitting at the week bench and looking across campus and I'll see someone walk across the campus. And for a moment, they will look exactly like someone who I went to camp with. Mm. Um, and, and I'll do a double take. Like, there's no way that that person is here right now. Um, and so from 89 till 2016, um, you know, I've been coming here basically every year and to see that change continue. And, and there's some faces... Um, that despite the fact that the majority of people I don't know, um, you know, there's people like yourself, right, who we became friends and have uh, kept in touch over the years. You know, it, instead of looking forward to seeing all the campers who are now JCs, it's looking forward to see the people who run camp, right, who yeah. are here year after year after year, um, and to be able to make the new friendships with um, new counselors. And uh, you know, a week ago, I or a week ago, I got here a week ago. So at the beginning of the week, I found out that one of the second year JCs is going to Cornell as a freshman next year, living in the same hall, the same building that I lived in That's when awesome. I was a freshman on the same floor of all places. Um, I have no clue what room I actually lived in, however many years ago. Is that Fischoff? Yeah. He's also a great swimmer. Yeah, he's a great swimmer. (laughs) Um, Interestingly enough, As it turns out. As it turns out. So, um, you know, and you build and you make these new friendships um, as time goes on. And then, you know, if I ran the waterfront for however long, I get to continue to have an impact working um, in the infirmary and working with, um, with all the campers and really trying to create that environment um, that allowed me to thrive and end up what I'm doing right now and hopefully to help continue along that so that they have a place year after year to go and they can be up at camp and be healthy and enjoy it. I always like to wrap up the podcast with one question. Yeah. Everyone knows. Tell me one great camp story. So I think the final story that I'll, I'll end with, it's a classic Denny story. Um, and if you don't know Denny, this won't make any sense. And for everyone who knows Denny, it's quintessential Denny. Um, I love Denny. I think he's, you know, he's been a second father for me. He uh, has always been a great mentor and someone to look up to. So my second year as a JC, I was the head waiter, which meant I made the uh, wait schedule and figured out where everyone was going to go. And I tried to be as even as I could. But I would say of the majority of the meals, I waited head staff. Uh, because it was easier. Um, I didn't have to carry as much. And I, again, the scrappy, small, scrawny kid, right, put all that food, I'm going to drop it for sure. Sure. So I weighed head staff. And uh, I weighed the majority of the meals for the summer. And at the end of the summer, it's one of the last sit-down dinners, and Denny comes up to me, he's like, you know, you have done such a great job as our waiter this summer. I want to tip you. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm a JC. Like, maybe there's going to be some extra money in my tip. This is going to be great. I can go home and buy something or who knows what, right? 
He reaches into his pocket and pulls out a quarter. And he flips it like they do to, you know, pick heads or tails. And he's like, here you go. Thanks for the hard work this summer. <laughs> and that's the end of it. Right in here, I have a quarter. And I'm thinking, what do I do with the quarter? Do I, like, I can't even pay a toll on the way home with this quarter. What am I going to do with the quarter? Um, so, you know, he continues that uh, same, uh, same way of joking and, uh, you know, to the uninitiated and people that hadn't been it, it could be very offensive, right? Mm-hmm. But um, I think it's just his true love and recognizing the people who truly love camp the same way that he does. Um, that We don't come up here for a tip and we don't come up here for the extra money in our salary. We come up here because it's camp um, and to be here and to be with all the people and to keep this thing that has been created over the past nearly 90 years um, to keep it going and to make it even better than it was. Absolutely. Well, David Salzman, you're a gentleman and a scholar, and I cannot thank you enough for your time today. Thank you. Okay, that is it. Another episode of the Camp Ojibwe History Podcast in the can. David Salzman, what a pleasure. Uh, I mean, I think you could hear it. We were having a a fantastic time. And like I said, even though I was a little under the weather, uh, we just had a great time and could have kept going another hour probably. It was also awesome to be able to get uh, David and his dad both in the same week. So a little holiday week bonus for you guys. I hope you enjoyed it. Come back next week. Uh, This weekend will be another another big episode, actually. Um, A a long standing, long waiting for part two of an episode that goes way back almost, I guess, more than more than 50 episodes ago. So tune in and see who that's going to be this week. As always, if you want to get in touch with the podcast, you know how. Drop me an email, Christopher, at CampoJibbleHistory.org, or just swing by the website and see what's doing over there. And of course, I'll say it again, if you need to get that last-minute gift, you can always swing by the website and pick up your History Project commemorative brick. It's a great gift for them, and it's also awesome to help keep the project going. And with that, I'm out of here to celebrate the holidays with a cigar. <laughs>